how many got sickness going around? We got four down in our house with strep throat. Yeah, pretty awesome. Love it when everybody gets it at one time. The worst, uh, the worst was uh, one Christmas, everybody in the house, including the dog, got the stomach flu. That's a true story. It, we were all so sick, Christmas Eve and Christmas, we were all so sick, we didn't even open presents. I mean, the kids didn't care. It was pretty crazy. Everybody was running around with buckets and bowls. But, uh, yeah, so this isn't quite that bad. But Joseph, our, our middle son, this is the second time he's had strep in the past month, month and a half. And uh, I think that's, I picked him up from school yesterday, and he didn't say anything, but he didn't look good. I said, you feel okay? Yeah, my throat hurts a little bit. Well, he fell asleep on the ride home between the, between the school and our house, which is only a 10-minute drive. And we got home, he had 102 fever. So I said, well, I'm thinking he's worried about getting his tonsils taken out. So he's trying to cover that because <laughs> the doctor mentioned it last time. But anyhow, things are good. Proverbs chapter 3, let's look beginning in verse number 9. Proverbs 3, verse 9. All right. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction, for whom the Lord loves, he corrects. Just as a father, the son in whom he delights, happy is the man who finds wisdom, the man who gains understanding for her proceeds are better than the profits of silver and her gain than fine gold. She's more precious than rubies and all things you may desire cannot compare with her. Length of days is in her right hand and her left hand riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are paths of peace. Father in heaven, we pray. For your blessing on our time together this evening, Lord, we ask you once again that you direct our thoughts. We need your spirit to teach us. Lord, even if we hear and comprehend intellectually, we need your spirit to apply these truths to us uh, deep down in the very fabric and fiber of our being. Please use this time to alter us in the image of Christ. Please use this time to glorify your name, for we ask it all in Jesus' precious name, amen. So a uh, real quick reminder that I feel like this is important to keep circling back to in our study of Proverbs, that the book of Proverbs is, is primarily uh, a book that, that pertains to, to earthly things, right? Um, so so we, we deal so much, I feel like, uh, with the concept of grace, that we're born again by the grace of God, it's the mercy of God, and all of that is true. Our, our destination for heaven is not based at all on any merit of our own right? Has nothing to do with our goodness, our, our ability to be religious or keep laws or follow, you know, different creeds. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with what Christ did for us on the cross. However, that does not relieve us of culpability on this earth. 
we still are to live the, a right life. We're still supposed to put in to practice certain principles just because we're born again. Uh, in fact, more so really because the fact that we're born again, there's a, there's a holy mandate placed upon us uh, to live out the principles. We've been set free not to sin but from sin. And so the book of Proverbs really deals more with the earthly aspect of who we are in Christ and how we appropriate uh, this life as, as Christians. So the subject matter is uh, in this section is learning to discern good and evil. And we talked about this a little bit last week, uh, but, but it's not just discerning evil in the world, um, although that is important. I think often that's, that's a fairly easy task, don't you? It's not that hard to discern evil in the world. You, if, you, if you live in the world, if you pay attention to things that are going on in the world, you have to recognize the fact that there is a presence of, of, of pure evil in this world. Uh, there's, there's an obvious uh, overt presence of evil in the world, and, and that's not that difficult, honestly. I think Christians are pretty good at identifying that, right? I think Christians are pretty good at calling that out. But, but it's difficult to identify evil in our lives. And we like to think, man, you know, oh, I, I'm, I'm not perfect, but, I, but I'm not evil. Well, the fact is there are some, some traits that, that we all possess that, that would fall, fall beneath the heading or the category of evil itself. So as we're looking at Proverbs and we recognize the fact that the book of Proverbs is primarily earth-oriented, we, we recognize that, that a re- reality that we all have to face in this world is that we live on a battlefield. Now, I say this quite frequently, but, but, but I feel like it's important to repeat the fact that this is not heaven. And when we confuse that, when we fail to recognize that, and I, and I know that sounds like a, a moot point, that sounds like, well, yeah, of course this isn't heaven. Thank God this isn't. We know that, but, but as it pertains to application and when we face difficulties and trials and problems and heartaches and grief and we're overcome with pressures in this world, sometimes we look toward heaven and say, God, why am I going through this? And the simple answer is, this ain't heaven. We're living literally on a battlefield as Christians, and the battle is between good and evil. The battle is between God and Satan. The battle is between light and darkness, and this is what I was talking about Sunday when I said at some point we have to pick a side. The Bible says the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it's not subject to the laws of God, neither indeed can be. So there has, to, there has to be a juncture, there has to be a point uh, in our lives when we make a conscious decision that, yeah, I'm born again, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, my name's in the book of life, but I'm going to live it down here and I'm going to identify myself with Christ and I'm going to stand on the side of good and I'm going to make sure that, oh, that my life is not being overcome with evil. And so we understand, again, this on a global scale, but you have to recognize that what's true on a global level also stands true on a local level, right? So as we, as we look at things unfolding in the world, and I'm not going to get into biblical prophecy or how all these things are culminating, but the fact is, really regardless of your, of your perspective of eschatology or, or future events, the fact of the matter is we see God's Word unfolding before our eyes. We see the kingdom of this world and the evil and just, just the, the wickedness and the villainy in this world on a global scale, but what we often again fail to recognize is what's taking place globally is also taking place locally in our lives and in our communities. And so I want you to notice with me in Ephesians chapter 6, verse number 12. You can turn there if you want, but I'm going to read it very fast, so you better have a thumb tab edition Bible. All right? 
Ephesians chapter 6, verse number 12, should be a common passage, familiar to most of us, but it says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Now, I'm consistently reminding myself of this because almost every problem I face seems like a flesh and blood problem. It does. My problems generally have a face, a hair color, an eye color, a tone of voice. You feel me? I mean, it's just reality. And so I think it's important to always come back to this passage where it says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we do wrestle against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Now, years ago, I was, I was preparing a series. I was actually teaching through Ephesians, but, but as I got to chapter 6, I was preparing a series specific uh, to the subject of spiritual warfare. And uh, as I began digging into Ephesians 6, um, as you probably know by now this about me, I'm, I'm a stickler for context, and I'm always saying things like anything out of context is a pretext, and, and the context is vital, right? We don't proof text, we don't pull stuff out of context, we always find the context of the subject to, to elaborate and to interpret any particular passage. And, and, and in many ways, when I studied Ephesians 6, especially the, the middle part, okay, the middle section of the chapter, um, in many ways, the context of that section didn't seem to fit the subject matter of spiritual warfare, although just a cursory level reading of Ephesians 6, that's, that's what you would take away. He goes on to talk about the whole armor of God, uh, putting on the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, the breastplate of righteousness, and all those things. So it's very evident what the context is. But if you look at what's sandwiched, like the bread, if you will, if that's the meat of the, of the subject matter, uh, the beginning of Ephesians 6 and the end of Ephesians 6 doesn't really seem to flow with the context. Now, I'm going to show you what I mean by that. I'm going to read it to you, and maybe you've turned there already. You can read with me. But Ephesians chapter 6, verse number 1 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. He says, You fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Uh, bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart, as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether He's a slave or free, and you masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also in heaven uh, is in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. And so that doesn't seem to fit, does it? To me, that didn't fit the context. As I was reading through that, I thought, now what in the world does all that have to do with spiritual warfare? What's that have to do with a spiritual conflict, a spiritual battle? It seems like all sorts of rational and practical advice, right? Children, obey your mom and dad. Dad... Don't provoke your children to anger and wrath and train them up in the nurture. All, the, all these things are good, but they're very basic. They're very practical. They're very foundational. And so I thought, man, what in the world does that have to do with spiritual warfare? Because my mindset of spiritual warfare was all mystical. All had to do with things that, that we engage. We, we engage in prayer, and that's part of it. He goes on to talk about that in, in the latter part. Uh, or we, we, we fast, and we do all these things. And again, those things are good, and they have their place, and they're important. But, but it also dawned on me that there's, there's not that much of a disconnect between practicality and spirituality. And I think that's the problem sometimes. Sometimes we tend to separate 
between practicality and spirituality. We tend to separate between sacred and secular, and we fail to recognize the fact that a lot of our quote-unquote spiritual problems could be solved by the application of some very basic principles of Scripture. See that part about children obeying their parents? If a child can't mind a godly mother and a godly father, now we can discuss children being raised in ungodly environments. That's a different conversation altogether. But the context of Ephesians 6 is the design of God for the home, which the design, God's original design for the home was a godly father, a godly mother, training their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The, the principle there is that if a child can't, can't, can't live in obedience beneath the authority of a, of a godly mother and a godly father, how are they ever going to submit themselves to the authority of God? If a father cannot control his emotions to the point that he provokes his children to wrath, that he, that he, that he incites within them. The Bible, in fact, I'm going to talk a little bit more about this in a while, but, but the Bible talks about not even making friends with an angry person because their, their anger issues will rub off on you. And so he's telling fathers, man, you got to get control of yourself. You have to get a hold of yourself. You can't be blowing your stack every time something goes wrong because your kids are watching you. Again, that's very practical advice, but it has a deeper spiritual implication. And so I'm not so sure that the divide between spirituality and practicality is all that wide. And so that's essentially... I said all that to say that that is essentially the insight that's being offered to us in Proverbs. Uh, physical and spiritual may not be all that far apart as we think. So in this section, the writer takes um, what I want to call a, a little bit more of a passive approach to the subject, and here's why. Now, last week I, I pointed out to you in verse 7, he says, Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. So he introduces the concept of evil in verse number 7. It's, it's, almost, it's almost a key to the passage or, or a little hint to interpreting the text. But, but nonetheless, as you read through Proverbs chapter 3, we recognize that the writer took a little bit more of a passive approach. Hey, Ethan, what is that thermostat set on, bud? I'm starting to sweat, and I ain't liking it. Y'all cold or hot? I don't care. Uh, no, Cool. Really? Great. I care if you agree with me. Um, <laughs> but uh but but the but there's a more passive approach taken. So what I mean by that is he's not uh, the writer is not just 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 overtly line upon line saying watch out for this, watch out for that, watch out for evil. It's evil, 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 wicked, 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 wicked. In fact, I think there's a reason for it and here's why. The best way to learn how to identify counterfeit is to become intimately familiar with the real thing. So chapter 3 takes the antithetical approach to the subject of evil. It's sort of like what Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse number 21, where he says, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He said, I don't want you to be wise concerning evil, but I, I want you to be wise concerning good things. In other words, you don't have to spend all your time focused on evil in order, order to overcome evil. But unfortunately, that's what we often do. We curse the darkness. We call it out as if there's something noble about being able to identify evil. Now, there's something discerning about it, but there's nothing noble about being, about being the person that's just always screaming and hollering about the evil that's in the world. How you doing? Well, you know, everything's so messed up. This stinking system, this election's rigged, and, you know, 
I kind of think both sides are, you know what I'm saying? Like we're, all, we're just always calling stuff out, and somehow, again, we feel like, like God's called us to be defense attorneys, and it's our, it's our portion in life to always be identifying evil. Now, again, it's important to be able to identify evil, but it's more important to be able to do something about it. And he said, don't be overcome by evil. In other words, don't, don't let evil overtake you. You remember what Jesus said about, the, about what you let into your eye gate? He said, the light of the body is the eye. Therefore, if your eye is evil, your whole body will be full of darkness. So, so, so the principle of Scripture is don't spend all your time staring at the ugly or you'll become ugly. Don't spend all your time staring at the evil or you'll become evil. You'll be overtaken by it. However, he says, overcome evil with good. So, so that's the principles that are being taught in Proverbs, specifically Proverbs chapter number 3. So notice this. I'm going to just give, I'm gonna give you a little sampling. Y'all ready? Just give you a little sampling like they used to do at Walmart. It was my favorite thing when I was a kid when they give out samples. Y'all remember that? So let me show you some, let me show you some samplings of how, how he gives us this antithesis between good and evil. So, so the opposite of greed is generosity, right? The opposite of greed is generosity. So instead of dealing with greed specifically, although it is dealt with in Proverbs, verse number nine, he says, honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of your increase. He goes on later, and we're going to see that in a few minutes, but he goes on later to talk about doing good to our neighbor, and we, we mentioned that briefly last Wednesday night. So the opposite of greed, how do we overcome greed? How do we, how do we get past this, this covetous, envious mindset? He said, well, start be, being generous. Be good to people. Be nice to people. Share what you can share. Give what you can give. You overcome greed with generosity. Notice this, the opposite of arrogance is humility. How do I overcome an arrogant attitude? How do I overcome just this inordinate level of pride that seems to well up in me? Well, he says in verse number 11, don't despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects just as a father the son in whom he delights. So he says, look, when, when you get corrected over something, and we talked about how to identify if it's the Lord a couple of weeks ago, I believe. But when you're corrected over something, he said, instead of bristling up and getting aggravated and arrogant and wanting to bite back, he says, why don't you listen a little bit, shut your mouth and listen and understand that it might be God is trying to put you in your place. Stay humble. Amen? Okay, guys. Are we going too fast or are we good? This is introduction. I got some good stuff I want to deal with. I'm trying to get through this pretty quick. So we overcome arrogance and pride with, with humility and understanding that, look, nobody's too big to be corrected. If we understand the relationship that we have with, with our God, then we understand that God will, will correct us. He'll deal with us. And we have to stay humble about that. And, of course, the New Testament speaks much of humbling yourselves under the mighty hand of God. It speaks much of how through pride the enemy gains a foothold in our lives. So he says right here, he says, look, don't get upset when, when you're corrected. Say, how do I identify if it's the Lord correcting me? Well, if it's true, it's God. I don't care who the source is. And sometimes it'll be someone that you may not really appreciate is correcting you. Yeah. Oh, here's a little litmus test. How many of y'all have ever been corrected by a child? I mean, you know, that's the, uh, that's the negative side of raising kids with biblical principles. They remember stuff. They go, now, Dad, I thought you said. I'm like, yeah. 
care what I said. Yeah, it's humbling. But the way to overcome arrogance, the opposite of arrogance is humility. The opposite of foolishness is wisdom. How do you overcome foolishness? How do you overcome ignorance? Well, gain wisdom. Watch what he says in verse number 13. Happy is the man who finds wisdom. You want to be happy? Quit being stupid. Right? That's the implication that's there. Happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding for her proceeds are better than the profits of silver and her gain than fine gold. She's more precious than rubies. And all the things you may desire cannot be compared with her. Length of days is in her right hand and in her left hand riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are paths of peace. That's a beautiful text. How do you identify wisdom? Well, wisdom is peaceful. James chapter 1 says the wisdom of God is first peaceable, easily entreated, meaning when there's a conflict, and we'll deal with conflict a lot between people, right? People equal problems, right? Anybody have a problem with another person? One of us, two, three, okay. We've all dealt with conflict with people. If you live among people, you will have conflict. I mean, unless you have zero backbone and no thoughts. If you never think of an independent thought, you may never have a problem with another person. But if you ever have an independent thought or opinion, you're going to disagree with people. And so we're going to deal with how, how, to, how, how, to, how to encounter conflict, how to properly deal with conflict. But one of those principles is that wisdom is always peaceful, as much as is possible. And we'll talk about that, too. I love that little clause. As much as possible, live peaceably with all people. Again, implications are beautiful. The implication is some people won't let you, and then there's war, and unfortunately, I like that too much. Let's go on. So the question is, how do I, we identify evil in us? How do I see evil in my life? I can see it in yours all day. Let's hang out. I'll find it. I can, I can pick up, I'm, I'm, I have a very astute sense for evil in other people, but how do I identify evil in me, well, I, I, again, I mentioned this last week, but evil is identified by its attributes. Evil, evil has a modus operandi. It has a mode of operation, and, it, and, and it's almost scientific. The more you look at it, the more you study it, it's almost scientific in the sense that we can identify evil by its DNA and character traits. It's true. I use the example of, of, of CSI, crime scene investigators, going to a crime scene and beginning to, to, to find the fingerprints, to find the hair follicles, to find little things left behind that, that the culprit, that the perpetrator has, has, has essentially put their, their identity on the crime scene. Well, we identify evil that way. You can identify evil by its characteristics. Evil has a particular character. And so, so, so what are some of the characteristics of evil? Now, I'm just going to warn you, I mentioned these last week, so you might hear them and just shut me down and go, no, I already know all this, but I didn't elaborate on them. I want to elaborate just a little bit more, and, uh, and then actually i got more stuff I want to give you, all right? I'm not trying to freak you out, but I have twice the content that I had last Wednesday, and I'm trying to get through it, okay? And, and I, but I don't want to rush. I feel like I rush sometimes. So if I'm going too fast, y'all just like, yell at me to pump the brakes. You good? Okay. So how do I identify evil? First of all, you identify evil by destruction. Evil is always destructive. Jesus said in John 10 verse 10, again, this is a good passage of scripture to memorize. He said, the thief, 
doesn't come into your life. He doesn't ever arrive on a scene anywhere except to kill, to steal, and destroy. When you see destruction, you can identify destruction, and I'm speaking in people's lives, you can identify destruction as being the evidence of the enemy's work. Destruction is an evidence of evil. So if we're trying to identify evil in us, remember, we're not just trying to identify evil in the world. How do I identify evil in me? What about me could possibly be evil? What about me could be destructive? Well, the Bible says that, that, that anger is destructive. And I hate this because I like to be angry. I like just being mad sometimes. Don't play with me. I'm telling you, some days it just feels good to get good and PO'd. Sometimes it don't. Look, I'm, I'm telling you, I've got a hypocrite meter in my pocket. I'm telling you, sometimes it feels good to just blow your stack, doesn't it? But we have to understand, and, and, and look, I think there's a time and a place that you need to be able to vent your frustrations and, and, and get stuff off your chest. That's all vital and it's important. But when, we're, when, we, when, we, when we deal with uncontrollable anger, here's what the Bible says. Let me just give you this. In, in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 4, it says that wrath is cruel and anger a torrent, a deluge, a flood, an overflow. It's outrageous. Wrath is cruel. Anybody ever said anything that you later regretted when you were angry because you said something mean? Don't raise your hand. I'm going to put mine halfway up, non-committal-like. But we've all, anybody who deals with anger issues, we've all said things in anger that was just pure mean. Just mean. Just hateful. Just spiteful. And it's destructive. Now, look, we're not talking about demoing a house or destroying an old vehicle. We're talking about people's lives. Anger in a person's life is destructive both to the vessel and to the one that, that the anger is poured out upon. It's corruptive. Anger is outrageous. Anger is cruel. And so when we see anger in our lives, uncontrollable anger, you have to recognize the fact that that's evil. I'm not saying you're demon-possessed. Don't take it the wrong way. That pastor thinks we're demon-possessed. Well, I might, but not because of this. But I mentioned last week that, that, that evil has been injected into the vein of, of, of humanity like a poison, and, and we all possess certain character traits. We were born with some, we developed some, and we have these different character traits that we've become very accustomed to. And, and we've learned to deal with things in this manner, and that's all we know. Before we know, came to know Christ, we didn't know any other way. But we have to recognize the fact that, that when, when we're out of control, we are actually being used by the enemy. It's evil. It's destructive. What's another, what's another form of evil under the, under the banner of destruction? Well, uh, in James chapter number 4, we discover words are destructive. Do you know you can destroy people through words? James chapter 4, verse 7, therefore submit to God. Now listen to this because I want you to have the context. It says, therefore submit to God. This is James 4, verse number 7. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. So he sets the tone, he sets the pace for the text. Submit to God, that's the humility aspect. Resist the devil, fight the temptation, and, and he 
will flee from you. And then just a few short verses later in chapter 4, verse number 11. So that was 4, verse 7 I just read to you. In chapter 4, verse number 11, it says, Do not speak evil of one another. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. And basically he's saying, I got news for you, you're not the judge. So think about the context. Submit yourselves to God. That means know your place in the, in the, in the landscape of, of this, whole, this, whole, this whole subject matter that he's God, you're not. He says, submit to that. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Okay, well, what's a practical application of that? He says, well, don't speak evil of your neighbor. I think it's appropriate how quiet we get on these subjects. <laughs> don't speak evil of your neighbor because when you, when you speak evil of a brother and you judge a brother, you're speaking evil of the law and judging the law. So you have to be careful what you say because your words might be used to destroy someone else's life. And so it's important that we, that we gain mastery, that we gain control over the words that we use, the way that we speak about people. Most people's favorite topic of conversation is other people. It's true, especially in small communities. And I wouldn't live in a city that you couldn't pay me enough to live in a city. I'm dead serious. If God ever calls me to a city, you better know it's God. And I'm going to need a written, I'm talking handwritten letter. But, but small, communi- small communities have, have, have many, many benefits. But, but one of the drawbacks to small communities is, man, people are freaking bored. And they have nothing better to do, and everybody knows everybody, or they know your cousin or your second cousin, and everybody's in everybody's business. See, but that can't translate into a church context. We can't let that kind of stuff infiltrate our communities as Christians. We have to be above that because, because the Bible tells us there are a lot of things, a lot of problems, a lot of sins that won't destroy a church and won't destroy a Christian community, but one of the most corruptive, corrosive things known to man in the spiritual realm is this little deal right here, not being able to control our words. In fact, the same book that I just drew those passages out of, the book of James, he says that the tongue is set on fire, the course of nature, and it itself is set on fire of hell. That's strong language, that the tongue itself, the words that we speak, can be set on fire of hell. And he goes on to say, isn't it, isn't it tragic that out of the same fountain flows blessing and cursing? Out of the same fountain flows blessing and cursing. It doesn't say blessing and cussing. No, but seriously, isn't it amazing how, how Christians have, have, have made cussing just this awful thing? And I'm not advocating for it, dadgummit. Don't say that I am. I'll cuss you out. You've never been cussed. You've been cussed by a preacher. But no, for real, but we act like children sometimes in a Christian context. Somebody says, damn, and we go, oh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> I can't believe they said that. can't believe they said that. Well, I've got news for you. You say, and I can't believe they said that, is worse than the fact that they said damn. Let me teach you some other cuss words. That's a biblical word, by the way. Don't even come at me with that. The point is, I'd rather hear you cuss than curse. 
I'd much rather hear you cuss. In, in my opinion, it's so it doesn't even rank on the same scale as someone who cuts other people down. It's not even in the same, it's not even in the same atmosphere. It's not even in the same universe. The, the, look, the case for, for gossip, backbiting, tail-bearing in the Scriptures is so strong. I don't know anything else outside of gross immorality and just, just, just gross violation of, of humanity. I don't know anything else in, on this scale that even comes close to being as damaging as the words that we speak. I read a story recently that, uh, about, about Socrates. Uh, Socrates obviously had a great reputation for wisdom. And, uh, and one day, a fellow came to, to the great philosopher Socrates, and he said to him, listen, I'm going to read this to you. He says, he says, do you know what I just heard about your friend? A moment, replied Socrates. He said, before you tell me, I would like to test you three sieves. The guy said, three sieves. He said, yeah. He said, let me explain. He said, before telling anything about others, it's good to take the time to filter what you mean. I call it the test of the three sieves. The first sieve is the sieve of truth. He says, have you checked if what you're about to tell me is true? The man said, no, I I just heard it. He said, okay. So you don't know if it's true. So he continued, and he said, the second sieve is the sieve of truth kindness. He said, what you want to tell me about my friend, is it good? The guy said, oh, no, no. On the contrary, it's not good at all. So then Socrates said, you you want to tell me bad things about him, and you're not even sure they're true. Maybe you can still pass the test of the third sieve, and, and, and it's that of utility. He said, is it, is it useful that, that I know what you're going to tell me about this friend? The man replied, not really. So Socrates concluded, and he said, so, so what you're going to tell me is neither true, nor good, nor useful. Why then do you want to say it to me? Now, if we would run every conversation that we want to have about people through those three filters... Number one, have you even verified whether this is true or not? Which, by the way, let me, let me throw this out at you, because here's, here's how we've justified it. We say things about people, and then, we, and then we add the caveat, well, it's true, though. Well, okay, so then maybe it's not gossip. But gossip's not the only thing the Bible talks about in, in a negative context. In fact, it talks about being a tale-bearer. That story could be true, but is it useful? Are you benefiting the person that you're telling? Is there some reason? Or are, are you just telling the story to tell the story? Is it true? Is it, is it useful? Is it good? Well, if it's none of those things, then why are we so bent on talking about other people's business? See, our words are corrupt when we speak in those ways and they bring destruction, and, and that is, that's, the, that's the farthest thing from godliness in a Christian's life. And I'm telling you, we condemn a lot of things that are not ranked. If you want to rank wrong, we condemn a lot of things that are, that are not ranked near as high 
on that level of wrong as, as backbiting, tail-bearing, and gossip is. And I'm telling you, it's the cancer of Christian communities. I'm done. I don't know. I'm, t- I'm just, just straight up honest with you. I don't know one church that's ever been destroyed by alcoholism. I don't know one church that's ever been destroyed by drug abuse. I don't know, I don't know one church that's ever been destroyed by abortion. I don't know one church that's ever been dis- destroyed by the Democratic Party or Joe Biden. I don't, I don't know one church. Listen, I'm, just in the, I'm telling you, I don't know a church that's been, that's been like actually destroyed by, by immorality. I've seen churches destroyed because they tried to cover it up and they created great scandals, but, but when you bring sin out in the open and deal with it the way the Bible says to deal with it, there, there's healing from that. I don't know a single church that's been destroyed by divorce, but I can tell you church after church after church after church that I have personally witnessed that was either destroyed by the fact that people couldn't shut their mouths and everybody talked about everybody and created their little cliques and their little groups and got their little groupies. I've seen many churches destroyed by that. And I'm telling you firsthand witness seen it happen. And, and, and when I say destroyed, I don't mean they necessarily closed their doors, but they, came so, they became so ineffectual became such a, such, a, such, a, such a byword in the community, such a, such a laughing stock, frankly, all those, those church people. What do, you think, what do you think Christians are identified by? Nobody, nobody, you don't ever invite somebody to church, they go, oh, I ain't going to that church. I heard that there are people go there that drink alcohol, unless you're inviting a Baptist. I mean, that's a different story, but, but you, never invite, you never invite a lost person, somebody that's unchurched. You never invite an unchurched person. They go, well, I, don't, I ain't going to that church. I heard people go there that they, they smoke cigarettes and chew that smokeless tobacco. I ain't going there. But what you will hear is, oh, yeah, I ain't going. I'm, I, talk, I know so-and-so goes to that church. Man, they tell me all the stuff's going on there. I've known people know stuff about me that I didn't even know about me. That's the God's honest truth. Man, I appreciate you sharing that with me. That's news. Right? We got, we got to stop this nonsense right here. It's evil. I'm just going to tell you what it is. It's bona fide evil. It's pure evil. It's pure evil. It's destructive. You're not building anybody up. You're not helping anybody out. If there's a problem with somebody and somebody else needs to be warned about them, warn them. There are people who are perpetrators and they're evil and they're conniving and sometimes that stuff has to be called out. I'm not, look, I'm, I'm telling you, there are things that do have to be identified in people. But let me tell you what Paul said to identifying people. You ready for this? In the church context, Paul said, mark those who cause division. Mark them. You know what that means? Identify them. Identify the people who cause division within a church community because that will be the cancer of that church body. It's destructive. Second way we identify evil. Point two, evil's identified, now notice this because we're talking about wisdom, evil's identified by confusion. This is important. I won't elaborate on it as much. But confusion is not from God. In fact, if we're talking about antithetical concepts, confusion is the opposite of wisdom. And in Proverbs chapter, or not Proverbs, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse number 33, it says God is not the author of confusion. Now, isn't that a simple statement? We talk about complex truths in the Bible that are hard to understand. That is real easy. How do I identify evil? Well, evil is identified by confusion because my God is not the author of confusion. God doesn't create confusion with people. 
God doesn't create misunderstanding. In fact, again, the book of Proverbs, dealing with things in a spiritual context from a very practical perspective, it, it talks about how to even overcome misunderstandings. Do you know what you, how you overcome a misunderstanding with somebody? You ask them. You go ask a question. Hey, man, you said this the other day. You go to that person. Y'all hear me? You go to that person. Hey, man, you said this the other day, or I heard you said this, or you looked at me this way. I came in tonight. Mike didn't shake my hand. I wasn't going to come back to church here. Offended me so bad. I'm still hurt by it. But, uh, you know, I'm kidding, of course, with Mike. But, but, but we get offended, and we carry, we carry that with us. He said the, the way to resolve conflict and, and to, to get rid of that confusion, just, just confront the issue. But it's uncomfortable, so we don't like to do it, right? But God is not the author of confusion. Now, again, we find these principles in Scripture. How do I identify evil? How do I identify good? Well, God is identified by peace and understanding and wisdom. And so if there's confusion and chaos, that's not God's will. That's not God's will. And as we're discussing, we're going to discuss more, of course, on Sunday about the Holy Spirit and how we, how we know if we're being led by the Spirit, how we know if God is the one moving us or leading us. I said, I said the last Sunday or the Sunday before last, I forget, I talk so much, I forget when I said what, but, but one, of the, one of the evidences that the Holy Spirit is leading us and that the Holy Spirit is present is that God's Spirit gives us the ability to stay under control. Self-control is one of the, one of the evidences of the Holy Spirit at work. Self-control, not confusion, not chaos. But see, we've created this whole idea, this whole genre of, of, of Christian communities where, where we identify the Holy Spirit by all this mystical craziness. Things that are anything but self-controlled. People who are anything but self-controlled. Well, the evidence, I'm talking one of the fundamental evidences of the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God gives you the ability to control yourself. He gives you the ability to, to have a sense of temperance in the way that you enjoy life, in the way that you conduct yourself in a self-controlled manner. So confusion is an evidence of evil. God is not the author of confusion. I don't know how it could be any plainer than that. And then another one, and this goes with the first thing we mentioned, but another evidence of evil is division. Division. Now listen to this. Again, here's what Jesus said. Mark chapter 3, verse 23, and then I was going to try to wrap up this chapter tonight, but it's not looking good. Mark chapter 3, verse 23, Jesus called his disciples to himself and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. That is such a, such a, a, a fantastic concept. Because Jesus, again, is giving us evidences. He's giving us insight to identify the work of evil. How do we identify the work of evil? Well, let's break it down. Let's bring it from the macro to the micro. How do we break that down on a micro level? Well, look at your house. Look at your home. If, if, there, if there's division between a husband and wife, if there's division between parents and their children, again, I'm saying in a, in a Christian context, if there's division there, 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 that division is coming from somewhere. And it's not heaven. And it's not God. And it's not good. It's evil. 
Now, once again, I feel like I always have to qualify this. That doesn't mean that there's a literal demon hiding in your closet. Okay, evil has, 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 has permeated humanity in such a way that the, the truth be told, and again, I'm not trying to break down, you know, all the construct of the spiritual world at this time, but, but demonic spirits are not omnipresent. They're in one place at one time, and we don't know how many there are, okay? But they're all in one place at one time. However, the concepts of evil have been woven into our way of life. And when you find division in a Christian context, be it in a home or in a church community, that division is not from God. Division, divisiveness, is diabolical. And so, so here's the claim made concerning wisdom. We're going to get back to Proverbs now. Here's the claim made concerning wisdom in verse number 15. It says, she is more precious than rubies. And all things you may desire cannot compare with her. Length of days is in her right hand, in her left hand, riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are paths of peace. She's a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who retain her. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the depths are broken up, and clouds drop down the dew. My son, let them not depart from your eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, so they will be life to your soul and grace to your neck. So the claim of wisdom is that wisdom will be a tree of life, that wisdom will add strength to your life, that wisdom will bring happiness. Happiness is a word that we often don't use again in church and Christian communities. You ever been, you ever, you ever been corrected by a Christian for saying, I'm happy? Come on. What you shouldn't be happy, you should be joyful. You ever heard that? Happy, happy is related to happenstance, and our joy is not based on happenstance. It's based on God's goodness all the time, and we should be joyful, not happy. Well, the Bible says if you have wisdom, you'll be happy. Happy is the man who finds it. So if you're grumpy, we just, you know, identified you. <laughs> Happy is the man who finds it. But notice this. I, I love this. Verse 22. Verse 22. It says that they will, that they, wisdom, the words of God's wisdom, will be life to your soul and grace to your neck. Somehow that stood out to me. Wisdom invigorates the soul, be life to your soul, invigorates the mind, invigorates the will, invigorates the emotion. He strengthens us in wisdom and all things pertaining to, to who we are internally. Wisdom invigorates, gives life to the soul. But then it says this, it gives grace to the neck. And I thought, what? Gives grace to the neck. Well, the neck is, is obviously being used symbolically, and, it, and it's used symbolically throughout the book of Proverbs, but, but the neck symbolizes the bridge between a thought and an action. That's how you get it from here to here. The neck is the bridge between a thought and an action. It's, it's where an idea becomes an invention. And so he says, wisdom will, will lead you to, to be proactive in this game. See, Paul, again, the Apostle Paul later 
elaborates on this, and he says, knowledge puffs up, or knowledge will give you a big head. Have you ever known any really smart people that just were so fat-headed they could hardly fit through the door? Just so above everybody else? Huh? I mean, a lot of intelligent people are just arrogant. You hear me? I'm not preaching against, I'm not preaching against being smart. You should be smart. But, but it has to go from the head to the heart and become a part of who you are. Knowledge puffs up, but charity edifies. When you, when you learn to take what God gives you, when you get, learn to take the revelation and the truth that God gives you and live it out, he said that's where it will be grace to your neck. That's where, that's where a thought becomes an action. That's where an idea becomes an invention. The neck is the bridge. It's the connection point. And so it symbolizes action in our lives. And then verse number 23 says, then you will walk safely in your way and your foot will not stumble. Walk is a reference to conduct or action. So it's time to quit. I ain't going to finish. I'm not finishing the chapter tonight. Yeah, I can't do it justice in two minutes. But then again, Tate probably won't be here till 7.15, so is he here? No, never mind. I'm quitting then. All right, guys. Well, thank you all so much for being here this evening. I hope that made sense. My number one goal in life is to make sense. It's really what I strive for. <laughs> I feel like I fail often. Now, imagine. All right, help me out here. Y'all help me. I want you to feel my pain for just a minute, okay? If you're in this room, you're either a man or you know one. You follow me? All right. There's a lot of good things about men, but men are not great communicators. And then God called me to communicate. So my, my goal is to make sense because I feel like I just don't sometimes don't communicate well, but I try. And so I hope that all made sense tonight and uh, hope there's something useful in there for you. All right. Well, uh, next few weeks, man, a couple weeks from now, we're going to be meeting over at SCC on Wednesday nights. I'm excited about that and looking forward to that. Uh, busy, busy summer. So I'm so, sorry. Well, no, not next Wednesday, June the 7th, right? Is that right? Am I got a calendar in front of me? June 7th? I mean, I only said it like a dozen times, and I still can't remember. Um, June the 7th. So that's not next Wednesday. Is that, the, is that the following? Okay, guys, stop it. I'm breaking out a calendar. I mean, it's June 7th. So next Wednesday, the 31st. Yeah, no, it's not next Wednesday. It's the following. So, yeah next Wednesday, and then we're at SCC after that. Yep, one more here. Yep. All right, cool. All right, then, thanks, guys. Once again, let's have a word of prayer, and we'll be dismissed tonight. Father, we want to thank you for all that you've done in our lives. You've been so kind and so merciful. Every good gift that we possess has been given to us and passed down by your hand. Lord, we're, we're thankful. And Lord, we pray tonight that you'd help us to operate in wisdom. I pray that you would impart wisdom to our hearts. We need it. But Father, you said if we lacked wisdom, we could certainly ask you, and you would always give us what we need in the moment. So we pray for your wisdom, that you'd guide us, that you'd direct us, that you'd help us to live the life of Christ in our, in our physical bodies during our time here on earth. Lord, we love you, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys.